I see green. This morning, as uh, we begin, we're going to go ahead and uh, let's take our Bibles. Let's turn, uh, first of all, to First Thessalonians, and uh, we're going to start there today. First Thessalonians, chapter four, and we're going to go down uh, to verse thirteen. It's a very common area for us to look at. One to where not only is it full of eschatology, but it is written for us that we might have a greater understanding of the things that are given to us. So we're going to be looking not only at Jerusalem, we'll we'll go back to that one a little bit as we go in, but we're also going to be looking for our Lord's return, and that's part of what we're studying today. Let's read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Notice it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep that ye sow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us pray. Father, again, we want to thank you that you have allowed us to study the word. And I pray the things that we have already studied and that which I think you have laid upon my heart might be a benefit and that you might see the direction that we want to study today. Help us, dear Father, to be mindful of the, the things of, of, of the present century, Lord, of those that are around about us and all the things that we look to help us understand the things that are going on that we might have a greater influence upon those that are around about us that will be able to answer the questions and the concerns of the naysayers, and that we might rejoice in your name. So guide us today, Father, and bless. May we rejoice in you, for it's in Christ we pray. Amen. So I want to go ahead, and uh, the, the notes that are on the back pedestal, you'll see this as well. It says, looking for our Lord. Uh, for our Lord. And I've oftentimes have uh, mentioned this, and I want us to go back to this particular thought as we go in. Have you ever noticed when eschatology is mentioned, sooner or later, the topic of the Antichrist comes up? Now, here's the thing. Many people want to know all about the Antichrist. They want to know about the wicked one. They want to know all the details there, and the Bible is filled with that. So we need to understand this. But before we get all hyped up about the Antichrist, we should know about the coming of the Lord. Now, this is a, just an end times chart. I, I use it as an example. There are certain things about it I don't like, and I'll explain that to you. First of all, it says the present church age. Now, many times when we see these kind of charts that come about, a lot of times people are saying is, well, you mean the, the church age as we see it today, but they're talking about a universal Roman Catholic church. That is never the situation when we talk about the church age. I would prefer to use the word Gentile age. 
as we read over in Romans chapter 11, it says, when the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In other words, when all the Gentiles are going to be saved. And this is going to be quite essential as we go throughout this particular study. Because I'm not Catholic, I'm not Protestant, I'm Baptist. And it's interesting that a lot of times people will turn around and say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is before Roman Catholics ever existed, there was a church that Jesus built. Now, we should model the, the, the plan that is after the, what, the church that Jesus built. So when we go back to the Monetists, the Donatists, the, the Novatians, the Valdensians, and, and I could go on and on and on, the Patributions, Paulicians, all of these individuals took the name of their particular leader, and that's what they followed after. Now, we're going to be focusing a little bit on the Montanists today, and I want us to take a look at why they were called Anabaptists, and they were called Anabaptists by those that disagreed with us. So, I don't like the idea of just referring to the church age, though if it helps the people to understand, we will do it. But the reality is, is when we take a look at going all the way up to the church age being ended, we then see the beginning of the tribulation. Now, that's how I feel. That's called the pre-trib position. Now, when I take a look at the pre-trib position, it is one that the Bible should be supportive of it in every fashion. Let's continue on. Now, I too am interested in this topic, but as believers, we should know the real topic is the return of Jesus Christ. His coming is what I believe is the final straw of the end time start. So, the thing is, when, if, if we knew that the Lord was coming in mid-trib, or if we know that the Lord was going to come post-trib, then I would be counting the days till I see the declaration of the Antichrist, I see the declaration of Israel and all the things that's going to happen to that. That's all part of eschatology. But I would not be looking for the Christ. Now understand this. If you go back to the Old Testament times, they were looking for the coming Messiah. They waited 4,000 years and the Lord uh, gave good indication when he was going to return. The promise of the coming Messiah. That was what was the message to Daniel. We don't always know the exact time frame, but there are certain elements that I want us to consider there. And we're going to get into them as well. We don't know exactly when the Lord's going to return. However, and I want you to think about this for a moment, there were four primary feasts that were given in Leviticus chapter 23. The first one was the feast of what we would call the feast of the Passover or the Passover feast. That coincides with the Lord Jesus Christ coming uh, to this earth and then being crucified on that Passover feast day, 33 and a half years afterwards, after his birth. Then we also had the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover, Penta, meaning the coming of the first fruits, and that's when the Holy Spirit was given and the first fruits were given to the congregation. Now get this, and again, if you think I'm off base, that's okay. I, I, I prefer to have the criticism. The reality is, is the next one is called the Feast of Trumpets. This is in Leviticus chapter 23. And the Feast of Trumpets is the calling of all the people together that they will be assembled together and they will be you know, carried away from the wilderness or into the Holy Land. That is always going to be in the fall. Sometime in September, sometime in October. 
That much I, I really believe. I think that every September and October, if we've survived to that point, <coughs> we ought to give thanks to God for it. Now, can I be dogmatic in this? Not really. I can't be dogmatic, but it just seemed that it will be there. Here's the next thing. The next area that we look at is the equivalent of numerology. So when we take a look at the, the centuries, which we are now in the sixth, uh, the end of the sixth century, if you will, and the beginning of the seventh century, the seventh century is going to be the ushering in of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before he ushers in, all of this has got to start. So I believe that when the church has taken them up off the ground, when the, the saved are, return, are redeemed off the earth, then there's going to be a turning point to where we begin to see Jerusalem and the attention that's going to be focused back over there. It all begins, I believe, with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, can he come beforehand? Absolutely he can. There's nothing to say exactly when the Lord is going to return. We should be prepared for his coming. Now, I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to help us have a clarity on when we or what we should be looking for. Did you notice that all the rest of 1 Thessalonians makes no mention at all of the coming of the Lord. It isn't to the end of chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, and then we go on into chapter 5, which we will get into in a minute. Now, the first thing out is, do we understand that throughout the Bible is the pattern which we must follow after? Let's take, and there's a couple things I want you to see. First of all, let's go to the book of Luke. This is a little bit of out of context with our notes. But I want to go to Luke chapter 17. And in Luke chapter 17, we have this particular uh, direction that I want us to look at. Let's go down to verse 22. I'll give you a moment to get there. Luke chapter 17, and we're going to go to verse 22. And, and again, my mind is just so filled with information, I want, to be, I want to slow it down a little bit so that everybody stays up with me. Look what it says in verse 22 of chapter 17. And it says... Uh, and he said unto them, unto the disciples, The days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. Do we not see the desire right now? I, I really want to see the Son of Man coming. Now, I've had a lot of people that they turn around and say, Well, this was mentioned to the apostles. Okay? Let's also say that it could be the apostles. They wanted to see the Lord's return while they faced death or any other persecution. It could very well be. And they shall say unto you, See here, or see there, or go not after them, nor follow them. In other words, don't be led astray by people that were going to say, Hey, let's go to the mountaintop and let's be prepared for the coming of the Lord. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. This is we know. For as the lightning that lighteth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heavens, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Now, I want you to get this. I've had a lot of people that have criticized me because of my tribulational position by saying that, uh, well, you know, you don't have any solid proof and all the old ancients, and I mean they hold to John Gill in his particular position, they will go in and they will hold to the Nicene Creed and the position that was there, and they, I mean they bring up everything under the sun. 
And as I listen to them, I'm going to say, but that doesn't follow the pattern. And here's the criticism that most of the time people will make. Well, do you feel like you're smarter than John Gill? What's that got to do with the price of eggs in China? It is nothing more than to belittle those people that study. Now, I'm going to say something to you. And here's what I told one man. I said, when it comes to eschatology, I feel like I have a better insight than John Gill had. Man, he wanted to rent his clothes right then. I said, let me finish. I said, John Gill was a man. Charles Spurgeon was a man. I said, there were other people that we, we read their materials and we want to hold on to them and saying that is where it's at. But if I could, I would want us to draw a curve. Now, I gave this slide at the very beginning to where that we, when John Gill was upon the earth, he could only see the cross. He was not permitted to see beyond the cross or have a full understanding. The reality is that to the time of the Lord's return, we see beyond the cross and we see the coming of the Lord. John Gill can never see that far. It's interesting. I've got a book that was written in the 1800s. It's in my library by a man by the name of E.E. E. Cummings. And he made this statement. This was back in the 1800s now. Get this. About middle 1800s. And he said, Israel is not a nation currently. But for, for, for Scripture to be fulfilled, it must become a nation again. Now this was tremendous insight for someone that wrote these materials down, and he was a Methodist, by the way. I'll let you all know this so that you don't get me wrong. He was a Methodist, but he could see that for all of these other things to come into place, there had to be a new Israeli nation. There was no nation. Here's the thing that's interesting. It wasn't until the 1850s that the language was restored. Let this, let this sink in. So not only was there a, a, a movement to improve and to bring all Hebrew back into conversation, which was a requirement, and get this, the English held out on Israel unless they had their own language. And they stood up and they said, we have our own language. We have Hebrew. And we know Hebrew. We've been teaching Hebrew. It's interesting. So everything was leading up to this, that point where the Lord was going to establish Israel as a nation. Let's go on. Let's finish up here, shall we? Uh, but first, in verse 25, must, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. In other words, Jesus Christ would have to be crucified. He would have to be buried. He would have to be resurrected. All of these things had to come to pass, and this generation, I believe, is the current generation. Now, with every generation, I mean, if we go back into the 1800s, we had a great revival, if you will, that occurred over America. The Chautauquas, which was the youth camps and things like that, that they began to hold out and uh, to be able to teach young people about Jesus Christ. There were uh, other opportunities to where there was mass movement towards the things of God. In fact, the American Revolution, which we are celebrating this weekend, the American Revolution came about because of revival. And, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. In verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, please remember this, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came 
and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. And the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's the thing I want us to look at. So, our answer is in the Old Testament. The answer is not in, you know, what philosophy of men. It's not in the Nicene Creed. It's not into some writing by John Gale or Charles Spurgeon or Arthur W. Pink or anyone else. The answer has to be in the Bible. So let's take our Bibles and let's go to Genesis chapter 7. And I want you to get this picture. This is an amazing picture to me. Genesis chapter 7. And let's look at verse 1. I'll give you a second for everybody to turn there. And the Lord said to Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. This goes back to what the Lord said to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, when he said, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now look at verse 2. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and the female of his beasts that are not uh, that are not clean by two, and male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, and male and female to keep seed alive upon the face of the all of the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto, the, unto Noah into the ark, and male and female as the Lord commanded Noah. And it came to pass, now I want you to pay particular attention to verse 10, and it came to pass after seven days, seven days. Why do I want us to focus upon seven days? Because that's what that chart is talking about. The seven years of tribulation is the equivalent of the seven days of Noah's silence. Look what it says. And the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Now I want you to get this. So the people are mocking Noah all the way to the very end. They mock him. They're saying is, oh, you're a good person. But, you know, you're, you're being ridiculous here, Noah. You're not looking at me, Noah. Has there is taken care of according to this heavy mist. Do you really believe that there's going to be a destruction like there, like you're talking about? Why, look at the beautiful sky that we have. The, the, the rainbowish colors, even though there wasn't a rainbow. The reds and the greens and the blues. And that's swirling around. And we also have this wonderful captivation to where we can enjoy the world. Yeah, we're just sinners and we've made a few mistakes along the way. You see, they were excusing the message. Now, when the Lord takes us off the earth, there is a period of seven years, and what's going to happen in that seven years? The first three and a half years, which we see in that tribulational period, 
are going to be, not only are the saints removed, but the witnesses come down. You know, I had this one interesting point. One person said, well, you, who's going to carry on the message of salvation when the churches are removed off the earth? I said, that's easy. I said, the two witnesses come down. But I said, the primary choice of their message is going to be to deliver the message to the Jerusalem or to the Jewish people that they will hear. But there will also be Gentiles that will hear. Now, if you take any particular writer, let's go back with the Left Behind series. And again, I love what Tim LaHaye did. And again, I love Jim Jeffries when they worked this out. But the primary focus was not on the Jewish people. The primary focus was still upon the Gentile people. Do you realize that the Gentile people, for the most part, are not going to listen to the message? They may try to get into the church buildings, but they're going to find they're empty. There's people that are going to walk around trying to say, what happened to all to associate it to salvation. Most of them are not going to associate it to the return of Christ. I believe the reason that churches are dwindling in number, especially in America or across the world, and the reason I believe that they're dwindling in number is to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, now think about this, there were eight souls Eight souls that entered into the ark. How many millions, how many billions, we don't know, was upon the earth at the time that Noah and his family entered into the ark? Anyone want to take a stab? I don't know. And so the thing is, we are seeing an excuse. One of the things that I find that was amazing to me was in the 1850s, people assumed that the Bible was always true. Make that assumption. Now, it seems like we have to defend the Bible on every situation. But here we find this, that for that seven days, Noah went into the ark. And when he went into the ark with his family, they were busy. And just like we had the seven days that of the apostles entering into the upper chamber and waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the same thing holds true here. For seven days, Noah and his family, and I can almost hear the laughter. I don't know how soundproof that ark was, but they could probably hear the laughter of the people. I've oftentimes wondered, I wonder how his sons were handling it, everything. Now they saw God close the door. They saw God close the door. Well, what was the rest of it that occurred? Now, here's the other part. So Noah and his family were brought into the ark long before the flood began. But when the flood came, there was no turning back. Let's also turn to Genesis chapter 19. And let's look at the example of Lot. We're going to go to, down to verse 18. Genesis 19, and let's go down to verse 18. And Lot said unto them, not so, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant 
hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou shalt show unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold, now the city is near to flee unto. It is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is not it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said, and he said unto them, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city for which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. Now let me point this out to you. Did you notice no destruction, no challenge, nothing could occur in Lot's life to Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot and his and, and the remaining, his wife and two daughters, were removed from that city. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. The destruction, of course, was immediate. But here's the thing. There has to be that margin of safety. You know, I, I, there's there's probably movies out there, I don't know, to where that people were just barely able to escape. You know, for, you know, here we had Lot and his family just barely able to escape. That's not the way it was. There was no destruction, and there was no releasing of the destruction until Lot and his wife and his two daughters left. But let's go on. Uh, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou shalt come thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered, the, entered into Zoar. And the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and, upon, uh, and, and the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities which are in the plain. And all the inhabitants of the cities which grew upon the ground. And his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, here's the thing, and I've had people ask me this. Will we see the destruction? I don't think so. Now, people will ask me, have asked me, why do we think that? Because of what we read here. They were not permitted to look in. Do you realize that Noah and his family did not see the destruction either? There was one window, and it was at the very top. And it wasn't a window that they could look out and see. It was a window that they could literally breathe through. It was an air exchange. And so what I tell people is, God does not allow us to see the destruction. There's a call that says, trust me. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Do we trust that the Lord is going to return? Are we really confident that Jesus Christ is going to return at any moment? I think as I study the Word of God that I am not looking for Antichrist as I'm looking for the Christ. And I'm looking forward to his return such that when he finally comes to this place that I can turn around and be, be excited about his return. And so I'm not going to be looking for the destruction of this earth. I'm not going to be looking for all the little details of things that's going on. And our news media constantly gives us a barrage of it. But instead, I have full confidence that the Lord's going to bring me up off this earth by the return at the given time as is promised in Scripture. Now that's what, now think about this, that's what the Lord tells us. In Matthew chapter 24, in Luke chapter 17, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us 
and even more so. Now, the next part that we have on this, we got time to go ahead and look at it, is the ageless argument. Point number A, underneath ageless argument, there are many who want to argue that thinking of certain ones dating back to the third and fourth centuries. This is where so many people want to go back into their modern thinking. Let me just give you a little bit of a clue. In the Nicene Creed, especially at 325, this was a group of, of uh, elders, if you will, that came together to consider the things that were written for their study and for their teaching. Do you realize that one of the individuals that stood up even wanted to denounce the deity of Christ? He did not believe that Jesus Christ had come as the deity that we now worship and believe in. In their mind, what they were saying is, oh, we don't hold on to that. We don't believe in that. That, that can't be true. And they were soundly defeated, and they were not allowed to present themselves. Here's another thing. In the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D., which were, there was no A.D. at this time, they came together to create a new holiday. They had already agreed upon that they had to figure out when they were going to worship Easter. Do you realize Easter is based upon, not, not, not the Jewish calendar, it's based upon the day of holiday when Christ was born, going back to the, the, the solstice, which was December the 22nd. All of those things happened during the Nicene Creed, and they extended it out, saying, this is how we're going to understand when Easter is going to occur. By the way, Easter never coincides with the Jewish holiday of Passover. Never. And I tell people, I don't understand that. I mean, we have something very clear for us to look at. Why don't we hold to it? Here's the, here's the third thing. They tried to get rid of the book of Revelation. You know why they wanted to get rid of the book of Revelation? Because it was too clear on its impact and exposing Antichrist. So when I tell people, why are you trying to voice your opinion, saying, oh, we're going to go hold back on the Nicene Creed. We're going to go back there and bring it out. May I put this out to you? It had nothing to do with the cause of Christ. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It had nothing to do except for the fact as to establish a global surmise, if you will. And here's what's interesting. One group of people refused to send elders to the Nicene Creed. You know who that group of people was? We call them the Montanists. The Montanists said, this is, this is crazy. We're not going to send anybody over to that. And even though they had a direct invite, the Montanists would not even send someone that is there. The reality is, and I want you to go with me if you will. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want us to look at verse 17. And this is going to be the catalyst when we begin to see what the Apostle Paul writes to us to look at. If we want to know the truth, don't go to everybody else's webpage. And like I said, I can find problems with all the details. I, I try to bring things out so that we have a little bit more clarity. And maybe I ought to create my own, but we'll see how that goes. But look what it says in verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, are we not to be looking for that particular point? 
Now, when is it going to occur? What I find that's interesting is that Paul and Look again, verse 17. Then we, 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 meaning ourselves, including the Apostle Paul, Paul said, you know, I'm looking for the coming of the Lord right now. Was that in God's plan? No. But we should be looking for the coming of the Lord at any moment. I will say this, is that I, I sure, and when I was younger, I looked to the skies all the time saying, is that the time of the Lord? How many of you ever seen a, a heavy cloud pattern, and you'll see the beam of light that will shine through and say, man, I wonder if that's the way the Lord comes. I don't know how the Lord's going to return. I just don't know. But when he comes, the whole world shall see him. Now, I've had someone say, how is it that all these things can happen just that quickly? The reality is, our eyesight cannot capture every little moment. I want you to think about this. Do you realize sitting in this auditorium are demons and holy angels as well? How many of you all can see them? And if you can see them, I don't want to, I don't know that I want to be in here with you. Reality is, is that there are all kinds of others that are in this auditorium with us. I've got a picture somewhere in my file where we have a baby that's crying while, while the preaching is going on. That baby could have been just as quiet as could be, but how do we know that a demon's not sitting there picking on that baby at that moment? And so what is our answer? Getting the babies out of the auditorium. Man, I want those babies in this auditorium. I want them to hear the word of God from the time that they were young. We have people that are playing on their phones. Why are they distracted to play on their phones? Because the message is not nearly as important as what they see on their phones. And I could go on and on and on. But this was a time when Paul said, no, 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 no. When the Lord comes, he shall come quickly, and we shall see it. But let's go down to chapter 5, and look what else it says. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Why? Because there was a clarity. They understood all these things. You, for yourselves, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. And anybody that sets a date, you got a problem. You're not really expecting, you know, and if I knew that the Lord was going to come in September, October, I'm not going to look for his return. Not until September, October. I should look for his coming every moment of every day upon this earth. For when they shall say peace and safety, meaning Israel, when Israel's at peace, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Is Israel at peace? No way. That's not going to occur until we hit the midpoint. Look what else it says. As travail so, uh, cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that we should overtake you as a thief. Ye are of the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The reality is, <clears throat> no matter what we're doing, we should always be ready to talk about the things of the Lord. Now, how many of us feel confident to tell others about Jesus Christ? 
when we have these end time discussions, and they're going to occur. I, I had a man the other day ask me this question, um, you know, about how do we know that what we believe is true? And I said, if it's not in the Bible, we don't hold to it. That's my, that's my answer. If it's not in the Bible, we don't hold to it. And so there's a lot of things that are there. For instance, the sacraments. It's not in the Bible, therefore it can't be true. Infant baptism. It's not in the Bible, it therefore it can't be true. Baptism for others. That's not in the Bible, it's not true. Mariology. It's not in the Bible, therefore it's not true. And I could go on and on and on. We should hold to the standard that is in the Word of God. And everything that we believe, every practice we do, should always be in the Word of God. Notice again verse 7. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that are be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are in the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Once again, Every little detail that we see ought to be one that helps us to understand. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, meaning the tribulation. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Is there any comfort in thinking that I'm going to be in the mid-trib? Is there any comfort in the post-trib? No. But is there comfort that I shall not see these things? Yes. Our life is not going to be easy. You know, and I love what one preacher said. If you think that we are going to escape persecution, you better guess again. We are on the verge of persecution now. Already there are people that are trying to take away the, the, our articles 1 and 2. And if they can make those two articles crumble, then the rest will crumble right along with it. Look what else it says. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. In other words, be encouraged by the things that you see from the Word of God. All right. Well, we want to finish up here for today. We'll pick up next week, the Lord's willing, at this particular point. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, again, thank you for your blessings. Help us now to walk faithfully before you and continue to bless and guide now. In Christ we pray. Amen. We're dismissed.